Welcome to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Englander. Today's episode is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema, and we are a fractional new business team for marketing agencies and related marketing service companies. Even if you're not at the point of being able to hire a company like ours, I still want to do my best to help out. And today we are giving away access to our most recent recorded video training titled Relationship Driven New Business at Scale, emphasis on at scale. This is all about how we secure five to 20 weekly brand agency relationships for each one of our clients using tasteful email outreach centered on personal and or business commonalities. A few things we cover. We cover the two big shifts that have created a huge need for this approach and why we think you should rethink uh, the way your agency builds relationships and does new business. We cover the specifics on dozens of commonalities that we have used successfully to build relationships between agencies and brand side decision makers. We cover a simple follow-up process that you can use for your team, if even if you're busy, even if you're in a mixed role between sales and client service. And we cover actual copy examples that you can use to get inspired and build your own campaigns. So if you'd like to get access to the video training, which runs about 30 minutes or so, you can do that by going to saleschema.com slash relationships. Again, saleschema.com slash relationships, plural. So I have a strange question for you. Have you ever had the same outlook about a brand or a product that a child might have toward the constant presence of their parents? Uh, and we think of certain products and objects as a permanent part of this woodwork of society, you know, be it Coca-Cola, Kleenex, McDonald's, the Rolling Stones. So in this interview, while interviewing Jin Say, who's the global brand president at Levi Strauss & Co., I, I think either consciously or subconsciously, thought of the genes like water or electricity, something that as a foregone conclusion would always be part of my life. Um, so it's easy to forget that this stature is not a given. Countless once dominant omnipresent products have faded and have been forgotten over the years. And same goes for water and electricity at times, especially if you lived through this past winter of 2020 in central Texas and beyond. Building and maintaining this stature requires constant creativity and hard work to articulate the relationship that consumers have shared and continue to share with these old brands, as today's guest reminded me. So as Jen talks about, it was not a given that Levi's would become the jeans we quote unquote live in. And during certain dark periods, it was not clear that the brand would even survive. Beyond being a 20 plus year veteran at Levi and serving as CMO, Jen's personal story is very compelling, to say the least. Per her official bio, Jen won the U.S. National Olympics Championship title in 1986, less than one year after having suffered a devastating injury at the 1985 World Championships. And in 2008, Jen released a memoir titled Chalked Up, which is a New York Times ebook bestseller detailing her triumphs and struggles within the world of competitive gymnastics. She's published an op-ed in the New York Times, and her writing has been featured in a variety of outlets as a leading voice in athlete advocacy, seeking to drive cultural and legal changes towards safety and athlete empowerment. So a few things we covered, the value of unconventional backgrounds, the one-liner that built a globally successful campaign for Levi's, what value center marketing actually means, the power of music in marketing, where agencies slot into Levi's overall strategy. So without further ado, please give it up for Jinsei. 
Jen, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So to start things out, you know, you have uh, a really, really compelling background in, in gymnastics and beyond. So if you don't mind uh, taking our listeners through that, just kind of, you know, how you started out and how you ended up as CMO of Levi's and everything. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I'll do the in a nutshell version. Um, as a kid, I was a very serious athlete. I was an elite gymnast. I was on the national team for eight years and I was the national champion in 1986. Um long time ago. It's, um, it's a difficult sport, as you can tell just from watching it, but the coaching culture is, is incredibly difficult and very cruel and what I have called abusive for many years, although the world is just sort of coming around to that. Um, and after I left the sport, and, and in fact, in the sport at my most successful was when I was really experiencing the most um, difficulties and sort of the most cruelty in the, in the form of coaching that I was receiving. Um, it's emotionally and physically abusive. Um, there is also sexual abuse that's fairly rampant. Um, and I struggled when I came out of the sport. I mean, I was, I was sort of unraveling while I was doing it, but I kind of held it together. I was quite stoic amidst the <laughs> suffering. Um, but eventually I did sort of come undone a bit and, um, rebuilt myself, I would say throughout my twenties and, and, and recovered, but continued to sort of su to suffer the slings and arrows of, um, of that abusive coaching. And then, um, just right before I turned 40, I decided I would try to write it all down. Um, mostly to make sense of it. I didn't really think that I would be able to get a book published. I wasn't a famous gymnast, you know, and I wasn't a writer, um, although I sort of hoped to be. And I wrote a memoir, which I surprisingly was able to get published. <laughs> I didn't expect that to happen. So I didn't really expect my entire personal life to be out there for all to see. Um, but I did get it published and it received quite a bit of press when it came out right before the 2008 Olympics. And um, the irony was, you know, I had sort of gathered myself and made sense of this experience and I think integrated myself um, and just faced such intense backlash when it came out. And so it kind of set me back again, I would say, um, you know, I was called a liar and a just in it for money. And you don't make very much money when you write a book and you're not very famous. So that certainly wasn't it. Um, I really was doing it to kind of expose the culture and try to help other kids um, that were doing the, doing the sport and, and try to, you know, instigate some sort of reform. That's not at all what happened um, until about 10 years later when the case of Larry Nasser broke. Um, and he's, he was the team doctor for USA Gymnastics for 30 years and um, was sexually abusing the athletes. Um, I worked with the lawyer in that case to kind of explain what the culture of gymnastics was like. And he ultimately did go to go to prison. Um, but it really did sort of expose the broader culture of abuse. And ultimately, I made a film called Athlete A, which is on Netflix now, which is about that and connects that sexual abuse to the broader culture of abuse. So that's my sort of life outside of sport as a child advocate. I mean, outside of Levi's and professionally as a, as a, what I would say as a child advocate traveled DC several times to advocate for the safe sport act, which has all kinds of um, rules and laws in there, which, you know, makes it such that coaches and other people that work with kids in this regard are mandatory reporters, among other things they weren't before. Um, so that is sort of runs parallel to my time at Levi's. I've been at Levi's for 22 years this month, um, which is a pretty exciting landmark. And I've worked in all kinds of jobs. I was a CMO for seven years. 
Um, and uh, ultimately in October, I stepped into the Levi's brand president role where I now oversee not just marketing, but product um, as well as strategy operations and go to market and all sorts of very operational functions, which enable us to bring the life, uh, bring the brand to life in the market. That's yeah. my life in a nutshell. Without my kids, I have four kids also, which is a lot. As you can yeah. imagine. I can imagine, especially this year. Um, so thank, thank you so much for for going through that. And and before we get to Levi's, I guess one question I have is: is my guess is you were you know uh, you, you were colleagues with lots of gymnasts kind of going through the same abuse, the same sort of experiences. But in, in your estimation, like looking back, what do you think made you different? Like, why were you able to sort of create a memoir and a movie out of this and get past it while so many people presumably a lot still are are going through it? It's a really good question. I'm not sure I have a great answer for it. I, um, I don't know. I will say what I'm grateful for is that in writing the book and then ultimately the film, it connected with so many young athletes, not just in gymnastics, but outside of gymnastics. I mean, I get, letters and emails from folks in track and field and ice skating and swimming and all sorts of sports. I mean, the Olympic movement in general is, is riddled with this kind of coaching. Um, and they were able to see their experience differently. I think that's, what's so challenging is the gaslighting that happens. Um, you know, you're suffering from this abuse and you're told that it's your own weakness. That is the cause of your suffering, not that it is actually abuse. Um, And so that's really confusing, obviously, for a child and even for a young adult coming out of the sport because you don't trust your own perception of the world, which is incredibly disorienting. You think you're experiencing abuse. I say it in the film in Athlete A, you know, you think that your ankle hurts. Mine was broken and I was training on it. And you're told that you're lazy. You think that you're hungry because you haven't eaten in many days because you get weighed in three times a day um, and you're told that you're fat and a piece of garbage. So that's very disorienting and it's hard to sort of steer your own life in that context and trust your own own perception. So, you know, I think that alone is what makes it difficult for people to see it for what it was. Um, And we go through all sorts of mental gymnastics, no pun intended, to sort of justify that treatment as necessary to win. And I just ultimately was able to see through that, I think. Um, not in small part because I was just suffering and I was forced to kind of figure it out and understand it for myself. Um, I think I, I also, you know, they're not principles and they're not values. And this is related to Levi's as well. If you don't really stand by them when things are hard, um, they're just platitudes. And and that's how I was raised, you know, and I've been willing to sort of take the backlash um, because I think long-term, you know, I kept the kids at the center of what I was doing. And I was really, I was just trying to help and connect with them. And ultimately the real story became clear, but I did have to endure a lot of um, criticism would be a nice word for it. I had to endure a lot of harassment essentially um, in, in speaking up for the truth. And I'm careful not to say my truth because this is really the truth. The, The culture is, incredibly abusive. I know a lot of people favor the language of my truth, but I think it's objectively abusive. So I won't use that language. Right. And I'm sure even, even from like a competitive angle, it probably, if if you are abused to the point of having to retire early or something, it's everything breaks on all angles. You know, it seems like it's, yeah. Yeah. And I would say, I mean, it is a very young sport, which in itself is problematic and I think contributes to it. It's very difficult for a 13 year old girl to not be a pleaser. I think generally we're built that way. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, I would say I was forced from the sport, even though I was 18 or 19, even when I walked away, I mean, the, the physical injuries were so great at that point that I just simply couldn't withstand the, the physical pain anymore. And it was creating significant emotional pain. And, and so I did kind of come undone. And I think if athletes were allowed to heal and, you know, train on healthy bodies, um, we would all have had more longevity. So, I, you know, I think we lose way more athletes than we gain winners um, in coaching this way. And, um, and it, even if that's not true, it's not worth it. A child should not leave a sport broken. Yeah. Yeah. That, I couldn't agree more. Um, and, and with that, I'd love to hear your, your relation a little bit more about your relationship with competition writ large. Like I don't consider yeah. myself a very competitive person. I'm just not naturally, but I've, you know, been able to build a business anyway from it. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to hear your experience with that. It seems like maybe, yeah. the, you know, I'm sure it was very formative, even though it was horrible in some ways. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about competition from an individual and then from company wide economic yeah. level? <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think I am inherently competitive. I don't think I could have done what I did if I wasn't. Um, I fought that impulse when I left the sport, um, you know, because I felt like it had been self-destructive for me. You know, the competition took over my own mental health and physical health and well-being. Um, I was kind of willing to endure anything. And so I, I viewed that as a negative quality. <laughs> um, and I, I remember a friend in college kind of, forcing me to go to a dance class with her because I loved dance. And that was something I also did, you know, before I gave it up just to do gymnastics. And I didn't want to, cause I knew myself and I said, I'm going to want to stand in the front and I'm going to want to be the best one there. <laughs> and she said, no, we're going to stand in the back and we're just going to have fun and we're going to goof off and it's going to be fun. And you're going to remember why you love this. And she was right. And she really sort of helped me through that. And at the same time, you know, I, throughout my twenties, I came to embrace that that was a part of myself and that's okay too. There's a way to do competition in a healthy way. And what isn't healthy is denying who you are, you know? So I sort of worked to integrate those parts of myself and to kind of embrace my competitive nature, but put it to good use and, and use it in a way that, um, inspired the team that I work on and now, you know, that I lead um, because I do think there's a way and I think team competition is especially compelling. And I, if I regret anything from doing sports as a child, I wish I'd been in a team sport. You know, I think you learn so many valuable life skills um, in a team sport, but I, I don't think competitive has to mean that it's a toxic culture, a toxic coaching culture. And I, I would say one of the most important takeaways for me from having grown up in such a toxic culture is that I want to create a positive culture where people can do their very best work and feel like they're making a meaningful contribution. And I, I just, negative coaching doesn't inspire that, you know, when people are demoralized, there's no way they're doing their best work. They just aren't. And so that, um, what I learned from the sport was to coach in exactly the opposite way. <laughs> and, um, you know, I never yell. I don't think anyone's ever heard me yell at work. I am direct and I provide feedback, but I also try to provide inspiration and just give folks the space to do really good work. Yeah. makes a lot of sense. And it seems like there's pros and cons to individual versus team sports. I think in the, in the team sport, you, you know, if you're, if you're a young athlete, you can always kind of let yourself off the hook or, you know, say it's this is so-and-so's fault or something. And it, but at the same time, that experience is probably priming you for working in companies and, and living and <laughs> functioning in the, in the real world. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right? So. Yeah. And I mean, look, 
gymnastics was the sport I fell in love with. So, um, you know, I'm not sure I would have fallen in love with another sport in the same way. Um, but it's definitely not a team sport. It's very individualistic. And we sort of pretend to some extent when, when the U S team goes to the Olympics, that it is a team sport and they definitely want to win a team medal, but you're not functioning really as a team. It's about your own individual performance. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, I think it teaches you accountability. Um, I think, um, you learn to be very self-reliant, um, in any sport you learn that if you work hard, you can overcome adversity. Um, I think it forces a growth mindset, which is very much in vogue now. I mean, if I think back to, you know, my time in the sport, if I tried something the first time and gave up and said, well, I can't do that thing, you know, I can't do a double back or I can't do a, you know, whatever skill I never would have learned anything. And so, you know, you're forced into that mindset of, well, I can't do it yet. And I'm going to keep trying until I do. And I think that's a really positive thing that you, that young people can get from sports. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And, and with that kind of moving on to Levi's, um, starting from the beginning, like how did that opportunity happen? Well, I started in 1999. I'd worked, um, I graduated college in 1992 and it was a recession and I didn't really have a job and I was teaching gymnastics, which I did not like. And I did not find myself to be the kind of coach I hoped to be (laughs) because I had very bad role models. Um, But for me, it was, you know, a better gig than waiting tables because I knew so much about the sport, Um, but I didn't like it. And so, and then I worked in film production for a brief period, about two years, but I didn't like the inconsistency. I really knew myself well enough that I needed the consistency of a steady paycheck to ease my own anxiety. And ultimately, you know, I knew someone who knew someone and I got an interview at an agency, um, Foot Conan Building. And I started working on um, the Taco Bell account and ate way too much fast food, um, but ultimately found myself on Levi's. Um, for several years, for about three years. And I just had always loved the brand. I'd worn it since I was a child. Um, this was at Levi's sort of height of share and revenue performance, and I would say cultural impact, although we're getting back there now. Um, and I, I ultimately left that because I was really interested in understanding, you know, the business beyond advertising. So I went to the gap for a while and I wanted to work on one thing, not sort of move from account to account. I wanted to have some impact and influence on the direction. So I spent about three years at Banana Republic, um, left there, uh, wasn't the right, I would say, cultural fit for me, worked at another small agency for about a year and then landed at Levi's because I knew some folks from, you know, when I was on the agency side. I started as an entry level marketing person and I've worked my way up um, through the years. And I have done, done stuff outside of marketing, which I think is really important to kind of round out your perspective. And I, I spent about three years in strategy um, with a totally different background than any strategy person ever. Um, Cause largely that background is, you know, top tier business school, many years at a consulting firm. And I didn't have that. I've never had that. Um, but I, I found I offered a unique perspective there having been on the business and not just advising, Um, I also spent about two and a half years leading our e-commerce team, um, which was really uh, eye-opening in terms of what it means and how intense it is to actually lead a business day to day um, and the intense sort of pressure of that, which I think gave me a lot of empathy um, for those on the commercial side. Um, And from there, I spent seven years as the CMO and, and now I'm the brand president. I skipped yeah. some jobs in there, but that's basically it. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. There, there's so much to, to dig into there. Um, one, one thing that, that I kind of picked up on is you mentioned all these other brands that you'd worked with in previous lives, some of which are maybe not gone, but not in the same level they were at Banana yeah. Public Gap, maybe even Taco Bell. But yeah, Levi Strauss or Levi, I guess at this point um, is, is a timeless brand. It's hundreds of years old. It just seems like it's, you know, maybe it goes up or down a little bit, but it's like, you know, you can wear Levi Strauss to the nightclub. You can wear Levi Strauss out to, to McDonald's um, or Levi. So I, I'd love to hear your, your, your experience with that. It's, it's sort of like this anti-fragile thing. And I love it. Like, what does it take to lead marketing for a brand that's just yeah. part of the woodwork at this point? Yeah, I think it's a mistake to assume that it's timeless and will always be around. I think you have to fight for that relevance every single day. And in fact, when I stepped into the CMO role, which was just after our our current CEO had joined the company, I think he joined in about 2011 from Procter and Gamble. Um, we were really in pretty dire straits, and it's not a secret. You know, it's been reported on by you know Harvard Business Review. It's a case study. Um, and I think we had gotten, um, you know, sort of complacent in our role as this timeless brand that would always be relevant. And we had, you know, we had failed to keep up with the times and the consumer in terms of where they were shopping, what styles they wanted, and even what messaging would resonate. And so it really was a pretty dire moment in time. And we said, you know, this is about, you know, fighting for our legacy and the future of this um, nearly 150 year old brand at this point, 2023 is our 150th anniversary for the brand. Um, so it was not a guaranteed thing. And I think it's evidence of the fact that even a beloved brand that is so much a part of the culture can lose relevance if you don't constantly, you know, fight to stay relevant. So when I stepped into the CMO role, it was kind of about reconnecting with the truth of what this brand stands for. And I think we'd been kind of pillar to post. We had, we had, um, and I'm going to talk about it just from a brand standpoint, there were operational issues as well in terms of, you know, being late to the party in terms of uh, opening our own stores when wholesale was declining, that kind of thing. But from a brand perspective, we had, I would say it was almost sort of a, a panic. We were every year trying something new. Um, and I think, and I've often said this, we were so afraid of seeming old within the apparel and fashion category that we sort of chased the edge of trend and youth without doing it in a way that was authentic to us. We are timeless and timely at all times, but there has to be this sort of timelessness to the brand. And one of the parts of that is connecting with what is it, the emotional core of this brand, you know? And so that was sort of the start of my journey and my team's journey. Uh, when I stepped into the CMO is sort of reconnecting with that. And it, as we traveled the world, we heard from people all over the place from Chicago to Shanghai that, you know, I feel like my best and most authentic self when I wear my Levi's, the version of myself that can go into the world and just kick butt and take names. And, you know, I feel strong and true and real and connected to myself. And so, and then we also heard I wear other things, but I live my life in Levi's. And so Levi's was viewed for the consumers that are most loyal and most passionate as a trusted friend. And we needed to grow that group of consumers because they had dwindled and shrunk over time and aged. And so we needed to reconnect with younger generations. Um, but the seeds were all there. That doesn't make it easy, but the seeds were there if we could connect to that authenticity. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And 
this is kind of a meandering question, but there's a great book that, that I read a while back called Obliquity. And it's about, I think one of the examples I remember from that was it was like a, a hardware company or something like that it had an industrial component. And the CMO, or maybe it was the CEO, came in and said, we're only going to f- focus on worker safety. And everyone thought he was crazy. Everybody dumped their shares. But for X years, they only focused on worker safety and it made everything else better. People communicated better. They built a better product. Everything worked better because of that. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Was there was there a one thing dynamic where you're like, okay, if we just focus on this one thing, you know, we're going to become relevant and turn the company around or, or does that dynamic not exist in your experience? I mean, I don't think it was one thing. It was a few things I would say. Um, it definitely was a tight and very prioritized list. Um, I think focusing on, as I said, reconnecting with the core of the brand and coming up with a communication platform or a campaign um, that would guide that communication that would become recognizable, but always surprising. Um, We made music part of that that journey and that platform. We had been a bit all over the place in in terms of the cultural connections we were, you know, attempting to make to drive relevance. But you know, I think when I sat down and looked at it with my team, we just felt that, you know, we didn't choose music, it chose us. And music is such a relevant way to communicate with young people in particular. It's such a critical piece of their lives. You know, we all remember, you know, the role music played in our lives when we were young and and still does, but it has a different intensity, I think, when you're young. And it was going to be not just about it's not about a genre. It's about originality and authenticity of the artist. And those artists have often always, I might say, chosen Levi's um, to rehearse, to write music, to perform. And so connecting with music was important, but I think it's critical to not to leave out product from this, um, from this journey. And, you know, I had a partner in design who started in her role at about the same time. And we were very much in agreement on the core and the heartbeat of the brand, but we knew we needed to reinvent product to deliver against that. Um, you know, we found consumers loved the idea of the brand, but they were concerned those that had left us or lapsed that they wouldn't find anything that, made them look and feel good today that wasn't relevant. And so they'd left the brand. And so our first goal was to get those folks back to reconvince them that we had products that were going to make them look and feel great. Um, So I would say it was sort of a a two-pronged approach, you know, around reconnecting with the brand's heart and soul, the authenticity of the brand, the timelessness, um, but then ensuring the product delivered against that as well. There's a whole operational piece behind it as well around the stores that we show up in and growing our e-commerce business. Um, but that, again, is about consumer connection in the modern day world and the places they want to shop and buy. Right. And it, it sounds like it's it's worked out well. It certainly resonates with me you know, when I think of Levi's that live in Levi's slots in perfectly. Meanwhile, there's other campaigns I can't even remember. So it's it's gone well. Um and with that in mind, I'd love to just dig into how a campaign like that happens a little bit more. Is it sure. one room where everybody just kind of comes to this idea and then it just takes on a force of its own? I'd love to hear a little bit like what distractions and what what are the things that didn't matter that you had to just like swat away over yeah. the course of like months or years? Well, we worked with an agency on the campaign, but there was a ton of work that me and my team did before we even engaged the agency. Um So, you know, our brand value proposition is at the core of everything we do. And that is a 
perhaps an academic exercise, but I think it's been a necessary exercise for us. Um, and, you know, the way we build that brand value proposition is it's a triangle. It's a format that P&G uses. It's a classic brand management um, format. You know, at the bottom, you have sort of what is required to connect and engage with consumers that isn't necessarily differentiating, but necessary for your category. You know, we need great fitting jeans that make people look and feel their best. That's an example. Um, then the next layer up is sort of how do you define your brand personality? Um, and that is, you know, the way you might describe a person's personality, but how can you describe kind of the personality um, that comes through in all of your communications and even your product, um, you know, original, authentic, connected. These are the, these are the types of words, courageous, we include. And then at the very top of the triangle is what, what we offer to the world that is more than what we make. What is that emotional connection that we have with consumers when we're at our best that creates lifetime value? Um, you know, if you're just making great product, they might buy it for a season and then go try something else. But if they're connected at that sort of higher level of emotion, you really have a much greater chance of, you know, obtaining greater share of wallet, share of closet and greater lifetime value. So we sat down or I sat down alone in a room um, and my history at Levi's was helpful here to craft a brand value proposition. And this shouldn't change over time. And as I looked back at what had happened over the 13 years prior, it had changed every year. Um, and it had a lot of words on the page that kind of didn't add up to anything unique. So editing myself, ourselves was very important. We then put that into a visual form, a mood boards and a video, and we took it around the world. And we said, is this what Levi's means to you? Um, could Levi's mean this to you if you're not a current wearer, but you do wear jeans? Um, we did that very quickly. We got positive feedback. We made some more adjustments. Then we created even more materials off of that, you know, buzz reels and that kind of thing. And we went back out because we were just trying to refine it and figure out how effective this would be. And it was in that sort of world tour that we heard the quote, I wear other things, but I live my life in Levi's. And that became central to the brief that we delivered to our agency. That was essentially in the brief, the single thing we want to say, I wear other things, but I live my life in Levi's. I looked at the brief just the other day and I was sort of stunned by how, um, how uh, precise it was. You know, we were very disciplined. And um, we briefed our, our agency partner and they came back with Live and Levi's in two weeks. And it was me and the CEO and the brand president at the time. And it just seemed so obvious. We couldn't believe we never thought of it before. <laughs> you know, it was like, oh my goodness, where, what have we been doing? It was connected to product. It has Levi's in the headline, right? It wasn't this, I think that's a mistake some brands make is you have a headline or a platform that is perhaps emotionally relevant, but you have to work too hard to connect it to what you make. This was connected, but it also gave us the room um, to do values-driven work and to do more emotionally-driven work. And we did start the journey in 2014 with very product-driven communication because we knew we had to rebuild that confidence in the product, you know, and we were resetting the product. Um, once we built more confidence in the product amongst consumers, our loyalists, but also new ones, we did sort of shift the dynamic a little bit more towards 
emotion and values. And that really took off, I would say, in 2018. And that's been very successful for us. But again, product was a huge piece of this and ensuring that the right products were in the right places. I think, you know, if marketing is the invitation and then the party's no good because the product's no good, you're really not going to be successful. So I can't stress enough how integrated those two need to be. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um, and what I find so interesting about that is that there's probably a ton of investment time and resources and focus groups and data and, and numbers and all these things. But it was just this sort of like magical serendipitous quote in passing that built the whole campaign. So has that carried over into other things? Or I mean, this is kind of a weird question, but are there, are there ways in which, you know, you thought about building serendipity into these sorts of projects uh, based on that? That makes any That's sense. A good, it's a good question. I think there's a lot of serendipity. I mean, I, I like to think we would have kind of come to it, even if we didn't hear that quote directly. And we heard versions of that quote repeatedly. I mean, that was the one that was like, blew our minds, right? We were like, that's it. Um, but I think what's required to generate the serendipity that you're talking about is one, you have to be in constant contact and communication with the consumer, and you have to really listen with an open mind. And that's through actual research, qualitative. Um, right now, we also have a Gen, Gen Z panel, and we talk to them regularly. It's you know Gen Zs from around the world, and we just do these get-togethers once a month now on Zoom, um, and we hear what matters to them. And if you're really listening, not just about product, but in the world, and and um, you know, so we're constantly out there doing qualitative research, trying to collect input to hear what consumers, what people, they're not just consumers, what people are thinking about. I think what's required on top of that is that you have a brand team that is culturally obsessed and engaged outside of your brand and your product, just out in the world consuming culture in the ways that they love to, whether it's books or films or music. You know, I'm a book person. Um, I read a lot, but I did was attending a lot of live music um, as well. And I think if you are in the world, it enables you to kind of understand culture in an intuitive way. And ideally, then you can connect the things you're hearing about your brand and your category to culture in a relevant way. But often these moments and these ideas come to you when you're not thinking about it, right? You're at a concert or you're reading a book that's about something else entirely and you're, it's just a light bulb moment. And so I think, you know, creative people and I think folks that work on brands often are, you have to have this sort of curiosity about the world and that can enable you to connect your brand and your business to what's happening in the world. That creates the serendipity, I would say. Yeah, that's 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 really great. Um, and one thing you said earlier, and kind of part of that is the the music element. And that's been a huge part of of how you you've marketed Levi. And you said something that resonated with me with me a lot, which is that when you're young, you know, music tends to affect you way more emotionally than as you get older. And I, like, why do you think that is? Because I've had the same experience, and I've tried to get back to music, but it's just not. It's it's still there. I still enjoy listening, but it's not it's not the same. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> and I think it's it's a good question. I don't know if I have a very good answer to that, but I you know your youthful years are so formative in terms of developing your identity, which I think is why even though I spent you know 15 years as a as a gymnast as a young person, it still very much informs my notion of myself. You know, it's 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 a 
relatively small percentage of my life now. Most people I know never knew me then, don't know me as that. And yet it completely informs how I think of myself. And I think that those are the years you're figuring out who you are and what you care about. And music can help you do that. You know, um, for some people it's books, you know, uh, it's, it's not music, but I, I think there's just something about the experiences of your youth, which sort of inform and formulate who you are. And I think music can very much be a part of that. I, I don't know that that's a very satisfying answer. And I know that probably people smarter than me have a better answer. Um, we all still engage and connect with music, but it does seem to be more intense when you're younger. And I look at my own children, I have an 18 and 20 year old and the role that music plays in their lives is so much more significant than what it plays in mine now. Yeah. And, and tied to that, like I remember whatever being a teenager in my twenties and then I'd love a song and then, you know, you hear it in a commercial and you're like, ah, oh, crap, it's ruined. Right. I'm just going to associate it with this product now. Yeah. Um, so maybe you've had a same similar experience, maybe not, but how do you think about that? Is there a way that you can use music without just, you know, I don't know, overusing it or, or having it be too associated with the product and still kind of respecting the magic of it or something. Yeah. I mean, I think the world has changed a little bit and that used to be the case. It's less so that now. Um, but I, I think it comes down to the quality of the creative and we're basically, we try to create content that people want to watch that it's not just here I'm selling you this thing um, that they actually want to engage with and I think most of our ads don't have dialogue in them I mean I would say 99% don't have words or voiceover and the music is really what tells the story and helps folks engage and I think if the quality of the creative is high and worth watching no matter what not just because you know, you're forced to because it's interrupting your show, but that you, you actually enjoy it and it's meaningful, then it doesn't have that impact that you described. You know, it just elevates your notion of the brand. And we've done this with unknown artists who are emerging. We worked with an artist named Jane um, on an ad in 2018 called Circles. Um, and the music is just so compelling. If you heard it on the television from another room, you would come in. And then I think hopefully the visuals would kind of be delightful and engaging and emotionally resonant enough and the message underneath of that, that it wouldn't spoil your sense of the music. We've also worked with incredibly famous artists, icons. We used um, Aretha Franklin's track Think for our vote ad, um, which launched in 2018. Sorry, Circles was 2017. Um, and I think it was sort of an unexpected take on that song and you know, applying it to this, this ad about voting and engaging in the democratic process and exercising this hard won right to vote. Um, and I, I don't think anyone thinks any less of Aretha or, or, you know, her estate, she had passed away already at the time um, because they heard it there. I think it just connected and engaged. I think if the creative is bad, then you're going to think it's corny and crappy. I, I don't know. It just sort of comes back down to yeah. that. For me. No, no, you, you hit on some, some important points. And it kind of reminds me of an interview I heard with, um, I forget his name, but the founder of Patreon. And he made the point that, you know, for thousands of years or hundreds of years, music and arts were, were supported through patronage, not through 
manufacturing a product and selling it. So it seems like we're kind of getting back to that a little bit. And I think you underscored that yeah, yeah, with, with uh, some supporting emerging artists and that sort of thing. So yeah. that all makes sense to me. Um, and, and shifting gears a little bit, you were talking about the importance of, you know, tying in the product and evolving the product. Uh, what did that look like for Levi? How, how did you, you know, kind of manage the stuff that was working and was timeless for, with newer tastes and trends and so on? Yeah. I mean, look, there's a, there's a lot of Levi's, products that are, I mean, the 501, the first blue jean patent was signed in, um, 1873. We, we look at that as the, um, as the, it, in May 20th, which is the day the patent was signed that we call that the birthday of the blue jean. Um, as I said, 2023 will be 150 years, um, since the 501 was born. That is a timeless style. It does change somewhat over time. It's not been the same exactly since 1873, as one might imagine. Um, but it is the ultimate straight leg gene. It looks good always. It doesn't matter who you are, what your style or where you're going. The 501 always looks good. Never like you're trying too hard, never out of date. I mean, it's like this perfect clothing item and it is my favorite um, from Levi's. And so clearly that always has to be important for us. Um, but we needed to update and evolve. And, you know, men at the time were very interested in, in slimmer jeans and, and still are uh, to a large extent, although we see the trend loosening up. And I think as the leader in the jeans wear industry, it's important we lead and start those trends and are first to commercially market new and interesting fits. And we hadn't done that for for far too long. And within women's, what was really important was comfort and stretch. Um, and while we had some, it wasn't as up to date as it needed to be. Um, the skinny jean was basically everything. It was probably 60 or 70 or even 80% of the jeans sold in the total market for women. And we needed to make sure we had the right range of skinny jeans for her. Um, fits are evolving. And, you know, once we got that core foundation right from, you know, super skinny all the way to a more relaxed fit, we shifted into um, delivering more fashion fits to the market, you know, to really exert that leadership point of view. And in women's, that was things like the wedgie, which was a huge hit and still is, is definitely one of my favorites still um, to the rib cage, to the, oh my gosh, the list just goes on and on. The mom jean, the dad jean, the balloon jean. Um, and I think now Levi's for women is really known as the go-to for the most leading fits and styles and, and for men. I think we had to build that credibility in women's more. Uh, but beyond jeans, um, we needed to really exert some leadership in all the stuff that goes with jeans. You know, it's not enough to walk into a store and just see racks and racks and racks of jeans. You've got to kind of understand the total look. And so, you know, tops has been a big driver of our business, tees and fleece and wovens and all sorts of tops as well as accessories. So our business has really grown beyond jeans in the last eight or nine years. Yeah. And, and and my guess is that there's a whole lot of noise and you've got to kind of find the signal and kind of figure out what the market or what people are whispering and figure out what's actually relevant and is worth adapting a product to versus what's worth ignoring. So it's yeah, kind of a weird a question, point. but yeah. And with that in mind, you know, is there, is there something that's equivalent to like the warm of exercises or the everyday exercises you might've done in gymnastics for understanding a market? You know, there are things that you're doing to, figure out what's actually worth 
listening to every day and staying ahead of these things. So that makes sense. I mean, I think you have to listen to a lot and then edit and filter. And there are certainly, I think, again, I, it goes back to me. I'm not sure if I can compare it to sports, but um, it goes back to that brand value proposition that I talked about. Does a trend fit through this filter? Can we interpret it through the filter of Levi's? I'm not a designer, but I am so fortunate to work with one of the very best there is, I think. And her mission was to make the look and feel of Levi's in the product so obvious and so consistent. She calls it the fingerprints, you know. When you start to stray too far from the core essence of what the brand is and the look and feel, it becomes not believable. And it also you, people don't know what to come to you for. They don't know what to count on you for. Um, and so we always look at every trend as in addition to trying to drive our own. Um, but not every trend makes the cut for us. Not everything is going to make it through the Levi's filter. You know, things that are overly adorned probably won't. Um, you know, Levi's is exactly what it needs to be. Nothing more, nothing less. And so something that is sort of too adorned is probably not going to make it through our filter. And yet we can probably find a way to adapt it and make it relevant for today on trend, but still Levi's. That's the goal. I'm not the expert in how to do that from a product standpoint, but thank goodness she is. Um, and thank goodness we're in agreement on what the core of the brand is. Um, but yeah, some trends absolutely don't make it through. As far as introducing new trends, again, it's listening to the market. I mean, the loose trend that we're really driving right now, we were paying attention and listening to what young people were wearing. And interestingly, a lot of young people were buying Levi's loose jeans from the 90s at vintage stores. So the most leading, the most trendy kids, the most up to date, they were going back into our archives, you know, more than 20 years ago and buying our jeans. <laughs> you know, the loose trend was huge in the late 90s. And so you know, we knew that there was an opportunity to remake that for today and reach a broader audience. Yeah, I remember that trend. I remember getting my jeans caught up in the bike spokes because they were too big and everything. So exactly. Mixed well, feelings about that. Yeah. It's back. Yeah, great, great. <laughs> That's, that'll be interesting to see. Um, and, and with that, uh, you know, you, you've talked a lot about the importance of building, you know, an emotional connection with the brand. And when I was, you know, when, when we were both growing up, probably going to stores, that's easier to do. It seems like, you know, you can have an, an interaction with this brand. Um, I had Rory Sutherland from Ogilvy on the show a few weeks ago, and he, you know, he made the point that Amazon is Soviet in a way, and that everything is kind of just slotted in to the space and it's not differentiated and it's changing a little, you know, you can have a homepage there and everything and have so, some interaction, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Like what, what does it take? And you've worked a lot in e-commerce. So, you know, that space, it sounds like, what does it take to, to build that emotional connection nowadays? Your experience. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wouldn't dismiss Amazon's emotional connection is around access and ease. It, it just is. If I need anything at all, I know I can pretty much find it there, whether it's, you know, paper towels or diapers or dog food or Levi's. Um, and so that in of itself is a key differentiator, the breadth of products they have and the ease with which you can find them and have them to de delivered to you in a moment's time. That's emotional. For people that simplifies your life. Um, and so, you know, I wouldn't dismiss it per se as a, as a brand that doesn't have an emotional connection. It just does it in a different way than what a brand marketer, I think, you know, their, their differentiation is around the business model, um, not the brand marketing. 
our brand is about the emotion and connection people feel to a pair of Levi's and to a, you know, your favorite item of clothing. We want to be your favorite item of clothing in the closet. We want to be that pair of jeans you reach for first. Um, and, and so it's just a different, you know, they need to fuel their connection through greater ease and greater breadth of product. We have to fuel our connection through product that makes you look and feel your best and communication that conveys the authenticity of the brand. So it's a, it's just a different strategy. Um, it's important for us as a democratic brand to provide easy access for our consumers as well. And so Amazon is an important customer to us. You know, it's where America shops, it's where the world shops. Um, and that point of distribution is really about providing access. There are other points of distribution that have much more curated assortments that are about providing um, a clear view on what denim leadership is. Um, so we use different, we call them customers, our accounts. We use different customers differently, but ultimately we are an incredibly welcoming and democratic brand. And so it's important for us to be available broadly. Um, but we've got to wrap that in the right marketing and, you know, and, uh, and campaign content, um, to maintain that emotional connection. And, you know, I think we do, a really good job of presenting the product on Amazon in the, in the best possible light. There's more content on our own website that conveys the emotional positioning of Levi's. And I think folks know that if they want a curated view, they'll come to Levi.com to check out what's the latest and greatest. If they want to know they can get any style, anytime, they're going to go to Amazon. And both of those things are important. Right, right. That makes sense. So kind of accepting the value that, that a network like Amazon brings. Um, and, and with that, kind of kind of in the last few minutes of our interview, um, I'd love to just get towards uh, towards marketing talent, you know, on the agency side, but also, you know, in your experience, you uh, started at an entry level position as a brand manager and, and worked your way up to CMO over the course of 20 years. So I guess my first question is like, how, how feasible of a career path do you think that is for you know, an entry level marketer these days, is that something that can still happen or I think so. how do you see that playing that? I, I think so. I think the path is less important than the skills you hone. And some of those skills are innate. Like, I think there's a million ways to get there. You know, for me, an agency was a great experience. You learn how the sausage is made, so to speak, you know, you learn how creative is made. And I think it makes folks who have done that side of it, more sort of empathetic clients and potentially more creative clients. You know, I think most agencies have worked with clients who haven't been on that side, who just say, do this and do it by tomorrow. They don't understand the complexity and the discipline that goes into actually crafting a piece of creative that's, that's really relevant. That gave me empathy for that process, as well as just being someone who creates content in my own life. It's not something you can just turn on, right? There's a there's a creative process that needs to be protected and respected. But I don't think that's the only way. I think some folks, you know, I have amazing members on my team who came up in a more traditional business background, who went to business school and worked at a consulting firm, but they're creative thinkers and 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 they. Um, you know, add incredible value. I think building out a marketing team, you also need people who are deeply analytic, deeply creative. Some bring the two together. So, you know, I think it's a, as a leader, it's about kind of finding that balance on your, on your team and kind of respecting all of those ways of contributing. Um, that happened to be my path, but I got a ton of people 
on my team who had very, very different paths. I didn't study. I was a liberal arts. You know, I went to college and studied in the liberal arts and I studied politics and, you know, I wasn't a marketing major, which tons of people on my team were, and that's great too, but I don't think it's necessary. I think being able to think for yourself, um, being adaptable, comfortable with ambiguity because the world is changing so fast and having a certain confidence and ability to figure things out that you don't know how to do. And then having a cultural acuity and a real sort of curiosity about the consumer and culture. Those are the required capabilities. I don't look to one path, you know, for members of my team because I've seen too many paths lead to success, you know. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point. Is there's not you can't SOP the sort of thing. So that's great. Um, and and with that in mind, I guess where you know where do you see agencies providing value to you know a publicly traded company like Levi at this day and age? We've seen a lot of different opinions on this. We've had you know somebody from Nestle on talking about juggling fifty agencies to do a million things. There's other yeah. companies that rely on an AOR and so on. Yeah, yeah, we work with a few, not fifty. I think we've got a sort of arsenal of about five that we work with for the right things, three that are core. Um, You know, they bring different expertise to the table. We have experiential agencies we work with. We have a digital agency, AKQA. We have various um, agencies that specialize in sports marketing because we have Levi's Stadium, and that is a very particular you know, expertise, um, but we try to keep it tight. And I think what I would say is we also have our own internal creative services group and we have a head of creative internally and they drive most of the work that we put into the world. Um, the demand for content now is so high. It's, it's like, you just have to constantly be pushing content into the world through social, through your own website. And so, from our perspective, having that internal and having that come from a team that knows the product as well as the product teams do is the only way to get that done so quickly and with so much agility. Um, you know, think about it. If a product changes or you shift your focus and you have to rebrief your agency every time versus going down and talking to your creative team and saying, remember, I told you it was skinny, but guess what? It's wedgy now or it's loose. And they know that product already. They work in the company. They So, you know, my estimation is probably 70, 80% of the content we put into the world is now coming from our own creative services group. They give you speed and agility and they give you a strong fashion sensibility. Um, But I think external brings expertise that perhaps we don't have the capability of building out. Um, I think objectivity and an external perspective is really important. They're not quite as embedded in your brand and your industry. That can be a really good thing. (laughs) They can call bullshit on some stuff, you know, when you start talk, you know, doing too much navel gazing. And so I look at it as our team, our marketing team, they're like the conductors, you know, they understand the task at hand and the challenge and they bring in the right partner at the right time to help with that. Um, Years and years ago, when I worked at FCB, the Levi's agency, we did everything for Levi's. And I, I, that was a common model many years ago. I just don't think it works now because the demand for content is just so high. You know, we made a few TV commercials a year, pick, play, and hope for the best. Like now you're pushing out new social content every single day. It just, it's hard for me to imagine not doing that internally. Yeah. Some industries are different, you know, fashion's a bit different, but I do think that the demand for content is just so high. 
Right, right. That that makes a lot of sense. And also things move more quickly. So you have to be able to adjust Ready to that, and shift you know? and pivot. But I love our agencies. I mean, our agencies has done, have done amazing work for us. You know, I mentioned circles. I mentioned the vote campaign. Our partner, FCB, did those spots. Those were incredibly important, pivotal moments for us as a, as a brand. And so they do incredible work. I, I think it's the partnership. You know, it's both. It's not it's and not or agencies and internal. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, with that kind of getting towards the end of our time, uh, a question that I used to ask a lot that I, I kind of want to go back to is, are there are there any trends that you're seeing that people should be paying more attention to either in the marketing world or the world at large? I don't know if I'm going to have any amazing insight here. I think I think a few. I, I think the, the demand for content, but also just the expectation from Gen Z, I think it, it requires that we think differently about content. They don't want polished content. They want authentic, real, you know, um, it, 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 we had a very polished sensibility about the content that we put in the world, but we see the content that gets responded to most favorably as a little more, a little less polished. I don't really know how else to put it. You know, that that's one piece of it. Um, I think the, impact of influencer marketing is just can't be denied. And as intense as it is here in the US, it's even more so in China. It just, and we were a brand that really didn't use famous faces or influencers for many, many years because we saw ourselves as a democratic brand, um, you know, really for everyone. And the minute you use a famous face, it's for that person or for people like them. But we've now, I think, very effectively um, begun to use, you know, both well-followed influencers, famous people, as well as micro-influencers. I think that just, you you can't not do it. It's just, it's too important in terms of the, the cut through. Um, and then I just think you have to recognize that everything is marketing. You know, the store experience is marketing. Like, it's not just about the TV commercial, which everybody knows. It's about every time a consumer comes in contact with your brand and using every touch point. So when they call into customer service, that has to be reflective of your brand you know, your packaging, every single moment, you know, your sales associates and the scripts and who they are and how they convey the brand, everything is what builds, um, you know, the notion that your fans have of the brand and you really can't leave out any touch point. Not sure yeah. those are good trends. They're not particularly trendy. They've been happening for a while, but um, yeah. I think really important. No, that's, that's a good point in and of itself. And especially true for a product like Levi that people are, are wearing everywhere. So it's like a walking advertisement in itself. So it makes a lot of sense. And Jen, uh, thank you so much for your time. I th I'm sure we could do another five episodes on, on influencer and a bunch of other things. Uh, how can people follow what you're up to and, and so on? Um, I'm on Instagram. I think I'm Jen Say SF, J E N S E Y S F. Um, that's mostly where I talk about Levi's stuff. I am on Twitter as Jennifer Say also. Awesome. Jen, thanks again. But of course, it. follow yeah. Levi's channels because then you'll really know what's up with Levi's. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Makes sense. Jen, thanks again. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Nice chatting with you. Likewise. Thanks again for listening to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. Again, today's episode is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. We are a fractional new business team for growth-focused boutique agencies and related marketing service companies. But even if you're not at the point of hiring us yet, I still really want to do you solid by giving you access 
for free, by the way, to our latest recorded video training. And that is titled Relationship Driven New Business at Scale, emphasis on at scale. And basically, this is how we secure around five to 20 weekly brand agency relationships for each one of our clients using tasteful email outreach centered on personal and or business commonalities that our clients share with the people they're reaching out to. So a few things that we cover, we cover the two big shifts that have informed this big strategy shift uh, and why we think you should rethink the way that you are doing new business, most likely at your agency. Uh, We talk about dozens of specific commonalities that we use to build relationships between our clients and brand side decision makers. We go over a simple, manageable follow-up process that you or your team can use, even if you're busy, even if you're in a mixed sales client service role. And we actually go over specific copy examples that you can use to get inspired and build your own campaigns. So if you'd like to get access to this roughly 30-minute video training, you can do that by going to saleschema.com slash relationships. Again, that's saleschema.com slash relationships, plural. Thanks again for listening. And I look forward to catching you on the next episode of the Digital Agency Growth Podcast.